6. Cairo a few years ago. The bluff where the city stands is about 50 feet high, and the ascent of the road so gentle that one must be very weak to find it fatiguing. The officers who came on shore with me went to the club rooms to pass the evening. I sought the residence of Mr. H.G.O. Chase, the commercial agent of the United States, and representative of the House of Boardmen. I found him living very comfortably in bachelor quarters that contained a library and other luxuries of civilization. In his sitting room there was a map of the Russian Empire and one of Boston, and there were lithographs and steel engravings, exhibiting the good taste of the owner. Rising early the next morning, I began a study of the town. Nikolaevsk was founded in 1853 in the interest of the Russian government, but nominally as a trading post of the Russian-American company. Very soon it became a military post, and its importance increased with the commencement of hostilities between Russia and the Western powers in 1854. Foundries were established, fortifications built, warehouses erected, and docks laid out from time to time until the place has attained a respectable size. Its population in 1866 was about 5,000, with plenty of houses for all residents. Nikolaevsk is emphatically a government town, five-sixths of the inhabitants being directly or indirectly in the emperor's employ. What is this building? I asked, pointing to a neat house on the principal street. The residence of the admiral, was the reply. And this, that is the chancellery. And this, the office of the captain of the port, so I questioned till three-fourths the larger and better establishments had been indicated. Nearly all were in some way connected with government. Many of the inhabitants are employed in the machine shops, others in the arsenals and warehouses, and a goodly number engage in soldiering. The multitude of whiskey shops induces the belief that the verb to soldier is conjugated in all its moods and tenses. The best part of the town is along its front where there is a wide and well-made street called the Prospect. The best houses are on the Prospect, and include the residences of the chief officials and the merchants. On the back streets is the Slobodka, or poorer part of the town. Here the laborers of every kind have their dwellings, and here the Lofka is most to be found. Lofkas are chiefly devoted to liquor selling, and are as numerous in proportion to the population as beer shops in Chicago. I explored the Slobodka, but did not find it attractive. Dogs were as plentiful and as dubious in breed and character as in the Sixth Ward or near Castle Garden. The church occupies a prominent position in the foreground of the town, and, like nearly all edifices at Nikolaevsk, is built of logs. Back of it is the chancellery, or military and civil office, with a flagstaff and semaphore for signaling vessels in the harbor. Of other public buildings I might name the naval office, police office, telegraph house, and a dozen others. On the morning after my arrival I called on Admiral Fulium, the governor of the maritime provinces of eastern Siberia. The region he controls includes Kamchatka and all the seacoast down to Korea, and has an area of nearly 750,000 square miles. He had been only a few months in command, and was busily at work regulating his department. He spoke English fluently, and was well acquainted with America and American affairs. During my voyage on the Variac I heard much of the charming manners of Madame Fulium, and regretted to learn she was spending the summer in the country. The machine shops, foundries, and dockyard are described in Russian by the single word port. I visited the port of Nikolaevsk and found it more extensive than one might expect in this new region. There were machines for rolling, planing, cutting, casting, drilling, hammering, punching, 
and otherwise treating and maltreating iron. There were shops for sawing, planing, polishing, turning, and twisting all sorts of wood, and there were other shops where copper and brass could take any coppery or brassy shape desired. To sum up the port in a few words, its managers can make or repair marine and other engines, and produce any desired woodwork for house building or ship repairing. They build ships and equip them with machinery ready for sea. The establishment is under the direct supervision of Mr. Woods, an American citizen of Scotch birth, Mr. Elliott, a Massachusetts Yankee, and Mr. Laney, an Englishman, are connected with the affair. Mr. Elliott had become a permanent fixture by marrying a Russian woman and purchasing a commodious house. The three men appeared to take great pride in what they had accomplished in perfecting the port. It was a little curious to see at the mouth of the Amor a steam fire engine from the Amaskeg Works at Manchester, N.H. The engine was labeled Amor in Russian characters, and appeared to be well treated. A house was assigned it, and watchmen were constantly on duty. The whole town being of wood it is highly important that the engine should act promptly in case of fire. The supply of hose was ample for all emergencies. Several heavy guns were to show me which were hauled over land from the Ural Mountains during the Crimean War and brought in boats down the Amur. The expense of transporting them must have been enormous, their journey by roads to the head of the river being fully 3,000 miles. I spent a morning with Mr. Chase in calling upon several foreign merchants and their families. The most prominent of the merchants is Mr. Ludorf, a German, who went there in 1856, and has transacted a heavy business on the Amur and in Japan and China. Mrs. Ludorf followed her husband in 1858, and was the first foreign lady to enter Nikolaevsk. The most interesting topic to Mr. Chase and the ladies was that of cooks. Within two weeks there had been much trouble with the chef's de cuisine, and every housekeeper was in deep grief. Servants are the universal discomfort from the banks of the Hudson to those of the Amur. Man to be happy must return to the primitive stages of society before cooks and housemaids were invented. The hills around Nikolaevsk are covered with forests of small pines. Timber for house-building purposes is rafted from points on the Amur where trees are larger. Formerly the town was in the midst of a forest, but the vicinity is now pretty well cleared. Going back from the river, the streets begin grandly, and promise a great deal they do not perform. For one or two squares they are good. The third square is passable. The fourth is full of stumps, and when you reach the fifth and sixth, there is little street to be found. I never saw a better illustration of the road that commenced with a double row of shade trees, and steadily diminished in character until it became a squirrel track and ran up a tree. There is very little agriculture in the vicinity, the soil and climate being unfavorable. The chief supply of vegetables comes from the settlements on the south bank of the river up to Lake Kizi, and along the shores of the lake. All the ordinary garden vegetables are raised, and in some localities they attain goodly size. Every morning there was a lively scene at the river's edge in front of the town. Peasants from the farming settlements were there with articles for sale, and a vigorous chaffering was in progress. There were soldiers in grey coats, sailors from the ships in the harbour, labourers in clothing more or less shabby, and a fair sprinkling of aboriginals. To an American freshly arrived the natives were quite a study. They were of the Mongol type. Their complexions dark, hair black, eyes obliquely set, noses flat, and cheekbones high. Most of them had the hair plaited in a queue after the Chinese fashion. Some wore boots of a tan skin, and a few had adopted those of Russian make. 
They generally wear blouses or frocks after the Chinese pattern, and the most of them could be readily taken for shabby celestials. Their hats were of two kinds, some of felt and turned up at the sides, and others of decorated birch bark shaped like a parasol. These hats were an excellent protection against sun and rain, but could hardly be trusted in a high wind. All these men were inveterate smokers, and carried their pipes and tobacco pouches at their waists. Most had sheath knives attached to belts, and some carried flint, steel, and tinder. They formed picturesque groups, some talking with purchasers and others collected around fires or near their piles of fish. As I stood on the bank, a gilliac boat came near me with a full cargo of salmon. The boat was built very high at bow and stern, and its bottom was a single plank, greatly curved. It was propelled by a woman manipulating a pair of oars with blades shaped like spoon bowls, beaten flat, which she pulled alternately with a kind of hand-over-hand process. This mode of rowing is universal among the Gilyaks, but does not prevail with other natives along the Amur. Whenever I approached a group of Gilyaks I was promptly hailed with Reba, Reba, fish, fish. I shook my head and uttered near the number and our conversation ceased. The salmon were in piles along the shore or lying in the native boats. Fishing was not a monopoly of the Gilyaks. As I saw several Russians engaged in the business, they appeared on the best terms with their aboriginal neighbors. Salmon are abundant in the Amur and as much a necessity of life as in northern Siberia. They are not as good as in Kamchatka, and I believe it is the rule that the salmon deteriorates as one goes toward the south. Possibly the quality of the Amur salmon is owing to the time the fish remain in the brackish waters of the Straits of Tartary. The fishing season is the only busy portion of the year with the natives. The town is supplied with water by carts like those used in many places along our western rivers. For convenience in filling the driver goes into the stream until the water is pretty well up his horse's sides. A bucket attached to a long handle is used for dipping, and moves very leisurely. I saw one driver go so far from shore that his horse protested in dumb but expressive show. The animal turned and walked to land, oversetting the cart and spilling the driver into the water. There was a volley of Russian epithets, but the horse did not observe them. At a photographic establishment I purchased several views of the city and surrounding region. I sought a watch dealer in the hope of replacing my broken timepiece, but was unsuccessful. I finally succeeded in purchasing a cheap watch of so curious workmanship that it ran itself out and utterly stopped within a week. One evening in the public garden a military band furnished creditable music, and I was told that it was formed by selecting men from the ranks, most of whom had never played a single note on any instrument. Writers on Russia 20 years ago said that men were frequently assigned to work they had never seen performed. If men were wanted for any government service a draft was made just as for filling the army, and when the recruits arrived they were distributed. One was detailed for a blacksmith, and straightway went to his anvil and began. Another was told to be a machinist, and received his tools. He seated himself at his bench, watched his neighbor at work, and commenced with little delay. Another became a glass blower, another a lapidary, another a musician, and so on through all the trades. I have heard that an Ohio colonel in our late war had a fondness for never being outdone by rivals. One day his chaplain told him that a work of grace was going on in the army. Fifteen men, said he, were baptized last Sunday in Colonel Blank's regiment, and the reformation is still going on. Without replying the colonel called his adjutant. Captain, was the command. Detail twenty men for baptism at once. 
I won't be outdone by any other regiment in the army. Near the river there are several large buildings, formerly belonging to the Amorf Company, an institution that closed its affairs in the summer of 1866. After the opening of the Amor this company was formed in St. Petersburg with a paid-up or guaranteed capital of nearly half a million pounds sterling. Its object was the control of trade on the Amor and its tributaries, and the general development of commerce in Northern Asia. It began operations in 1858, but was unfortunate from the beginning. In 1859 it sent out three ships, two of which were lost between Dicastries and Nikolaevsk. Each of them had valuable cargoes and the iron and machinery for two river steamers. The third ship arrived safely, and a steamer which she brought was put together during the winter. It struck a rock and sunk on its first voyage up the river. The misfortunes of the company in following years did not come quite as thick, but their number was ample. The company's dividends were invariably high hermitan. It lost money from the beginning, and after spending two and a half million dollars, closed its affairs and went up in a balloon. The Russian government has been disappointed in the result of opening the Amor. Ten years ago it was thought a great commerce would spring up. But the result has been otherwise. There can be no traffic where there are no people to trade with. And when the Amor was opened the country was little better than a wilderness. The natives were not a mercantile community. There was only one manger city on the bank of the Amor. And for some time its people were not allowed to trade with Russians. Even when it was opened it had no important commerce as it was far removed from the silk, tea, or porcelain districts of China. Plainly the dependence must be upon colonization. The Amor was peopled under government patronage, many settlers coming from the Transbaikal province, and others from European Russia. Nearly all were poor and brought very little money to their new homes. Many were Cossacks and soldiers, and not reconciled to hard labor. During the first two years of their residence the Amor colonists were supplied with flour at government expense, but after that it was expected they could support themselves. Most of the colonies were half military in their character, being composed of Cossacks, with their families, on the lower part of the Amor, outside the military posts. The settlers were peasants. Flour was carried from St. Petersburg to the Amor to supply the garrison and the newly arrived settlers. The production is not yet sufficient for the population, and when I was at Nikolaevsk I saw flour just landed from Kronstadt. The settlers had generally reached the self-sustaining point, but they did not produce enough to feed the military and naval force. Until they do this the Amor will be unprofitable. On the upper Amor flour was formerly brought from the Transbaikal province to supply the settlements down to Khabarovka. In 1866 there was a short crop in that province and a good one on the upper Amor. A large quantity of wheat and rye, I was told 50,000 bushels, was taken to the Transbaikal and sold there. On the whole the Amor country is very good for agriculture, and will sustain itself in time. The import trade is chiefly in American and German hands, and comprises miscellaneous goods, of which they told me at least 50%, were wines and intoxicating liquors. The Russian emperor should make intemperance a penal offense and issue an edict against it. A Boston house was the first foreign one opened here, and then came a German one. Others followed, principally from America, the Sandwich Islands, Hamburg, and Bremen. Most of the Americans have retired from the field, to were closing when I was at the Amor, and Mr. Boardman's was the only house in full operation. There were three German establishments, and another of a German-American character. 
all the cereals can be grown on the anor, and the yield is said to be very good, when its production is developed, wheat can be exported to China and the Sandwich Islands at a good profit, until 1864 the government prohibited the export of timber, although it had inexhaustible quantities growing on the anor and its tributaries, I saw at Nikolaevsk and elsewhere oak and ash of excellent quality, the former was not as tough as New England oak, but the ash could hardly be excelled anywhere, and I was surprised to learn that no one had attempted its export to California, where good timber for wagons and similar work is altogether wanting. Pine trees are large, straight, tough, and good-fibered. They ought to compete in Chinese ports with pine lumber from elsewhere. There is a peculiar kind of oak, the makia, suitable for cabinet work. Some exports of wool, hides, and tallow have been made, but none of importance. One cargo of ice has been sent to China but it melted on the way from improper packing. A Hong Kong merchant once ordered a cargo of hams from the Anor, and when he received it and opened the barrels he found they contained nothing but bones. As the bone market was low at that time he did not repeat his order. Flax and hemp will grow here, and might become profitable exports. There is excellent grazing land and no lack of pasturage, but at present bears make fearful havoc among the cattle and sheep. In some localities tigers are numerous particularly among the Berry Mountains, where the Cossacks make a profession of hunting them. The tiger is not likely to become an article of commerce, but on the contrary is calculated to retard civilization. With increased agriculture, pork can be raised and cured, and the Russians might find it to their advantage to introduce Indian corn, now almost unknown on the Anor. At present hogs on the lower Anor subsist largely on fish, and the pork has a very unpleasant flavor. The steward of the Variag told me that in 1865, when at Castries, he had two small pigs from Japan. A vessel just from the Anor had a large hog which had been purchased at Nikolaevsk. The captain of the ship offered his hog for the two pigs, on the plea that he wished to keep them during his voyage. As the hog was three times the weight of the pigs the steward gladly accepted the proposal, and wondered how a man who made so absurd a trade could be captain of a ship. On killing his prize he found the pork so fishy in flavor that nobody could eat it. The whole hog went literally to the dogs. Nikolaevsk is a free port of entry, and there are no duties upon merchandise anywhere in Siberia east of Lake Baikal. Since the opening of commerce, in 1865, the number of ships arriving annually varies from 6 or 8 to nearly 40. In 1866 there were 23 vessels on government, and 15 on private account. The government vessels brought flour, salt, lead, iron, machinery, telegraph material, army and navy equipments, and a thousand and one articles included under the head of government stores. The private ones, three of them American, brought miscellaneous cargoes for the mercantile community. There were no wrecks in that year, or at any rate, none up to the time of my departure. At the Anor I first began to hear those stories of peculation that greet every traveler in Russia. According to my informants there were many deficiencies in official departments, and very often losses were ascribed to leakage, breakage, and damage of different kinds. Did you ever hear, said a gentleman to me, of rats devouring window glass, or of emperors and boiler iron blowing away in the wind? However startling such phenomena. He declared they had been known at Nikolaevsk and elsewhere in the empire. I think if all the truth were revealed we might learn of equally strange occurrences in America during the late war.
the Russians have explored very thoroughly the coast of Manjuria in search of good harbors. Below the Castries the first of importance is Barakata Bay. In latitude 49 degrees, the government made a settlement there in 1853, but subsequently abandoned it for all the bay. Six degrees further south, Vladivostok, or Dominion of the East, was occupied in 1857, and a naval station commenced. A few years later, Poziad was founded near the head of the Korean Peninsula, and is now growing rapidly. It has one of the finest harbors on the Japan Sea, completely sheltered, easily defended, and affording superior facilities for repairing ships of war or commerce. It is free from ice the entire year, and has a little cove or bay that could be converted into a dry dock at small expense. In 1865 Poziad was visited by ten merchant vessels, it exported 15,000 pounds of Beshtimir, the little fish formerly the monopoly of the Fijis, and of which John Chinaman is very fond, it exported 10,000 pounds of bean cake, and 11 times that quantity of a peculiar sea grass eaten by the Celestials. Ginseng root was also an article of commerce between Poziad and Shanghai. Russia appears in earnest about the development of the Manjurian coast and is making many efforts for that object. The telegraph is completed from Nikolaevsk to the new seaport, and a post route has been established along the Usuri. From San Francisco to the mouth of the Amur I did not see a wheeled vehicle, with the exception of a hand cart and a dog wagon. At Nikolaevsk there were horses, carts, and carriages, and I had my first experience of a horse harnessed with the Russian yoke. The theory of the yoke island that it keeps the shafts away from the animal's sides, and enables him to exert more strength than when closely hedged, I cannot give a positive opinion on this point, but believe the Russians are correct. The yoke standing high above the horse's head and touching him nowhere, has a curious appearance when first seen. I never could get over the idea while looking at a dray in motion, that the horse was endeavoring to walk through an arched gateway and taking it along with him. The shafts were wide apart and attached by straps to the horse's collar. All the tension came through the shafts, and these were strengthened by ropes that extended to the ends of the forward axle. Harnesses had a shabby, fixed-up appearance, with a good deal of rope in their composition. Why they did not go to pieces or crumble to nothing, like the deacon's one horse shade, was a mystery. Before leaving Nikolaevsk I enjoyed a ride in one of its private carriages. The vehicle was open its floor quite low, and the wheel small, we had two horses, one between the shafts and wearing the inevitable yoke, the other was outside, and attached to an iron single tree over the forward wheel, three horses can be driven abreast on this kind of carriage, the shaft horse trotted, while the other galloped, holding his head very low and turned outward, this is due to a check rein, which keeps him in a position hardly natural. The orthodox mode in Russia is to have the shaft horse trotting while the other runs as described. The difference in the motion gives an attractive and dashy appearance to the turnout. Existence would be incomplete to a Russian without an equipage, and if he cannot own one he keeps it on hire. The gaiety of Russian cities in winter and summer is largely due to the number of private vehicles in constant motion through the streets. Chapter XI I arranged to ascend the Amur on the steamer Angona which was appointed to start on the 18th of September. My friend Anasov remained at Nikolaevsk during the winter, instead of proceeding to Irkutsk as I had fondly hoped. I found a companion du voyage in Captain Borstein, of General Korsakov's staff. In a drenching rain on the afternoon of the 17th, we carried our baggage to the Ingona, 
which lay half a mile from shore. We reached the steamer after about 20 minutes pulling in a whale boat and shipping a barrel of water through the carelessness of an oarsman. At Nikolaevsk the Anor is about a mile and a half wide, with a depth of 20 to 35 feet in the channel. I asked a resident what he thought the average rapidity of the current in front of the town. When you look at it or float with it, said he, I think it is about three and a half miles. If you go against it you find it not an inch less than five miles. The rowers had no light task to stem the rapid stream, and I think it was about like the Mississippi at Memphis. The boat was to leave early in the morning. I took a farewell dinner with Mr. Chase, and at 10 o'clock received a note from Borstein announcing his readiness to go to the steamer. Anisov, Chase, and half a dozen others assembled to see us off, and after waking the echoes and watchmen on the pier, we secured a skiff and reached the Ingona. The rain was over, and stars were peeping through occasional loopholes in the clouds, seeing off consumed much time and more champagne. As we left the house I observed Chase and Anisov each putting a bottle in his pocket, and remarking the excellent character of their ballast. From the quantity that revealed itself afterward the two bottles must have multiplied, or other persons in the party were equally provided. To send off a friend in Russia requires an amount of health drinking rarely witnessed in New York or Boston. If the journey is by land the wayfarer is escorted a short distance on his route, sometimes to the edge of the town and sometimes to the first station, a are uppered over champagne, tea, lunch and champagne. It was nearly daybreak when our friends gave us the last handshake and went over the side, watching till their boat disappeared in the gloom. I sought the cabin, and found the table covered with a beggarly array of empty bottles and a confused mass of fragmentary edibles. I retired to sleep, while the cabin boy cleared away the wreck. The sun rose before our captain. When I followed their example we were still at anchor and our boilers cold as a refusal to a beggar. Late in the morning the captain appeared, about nine o'clock fire was kindled in the furnace, and a little past ten we were underway. As our anchor rose and the wheel began to move, most of the deck passengers turned in the direction of the church and devoutly made the sign of the cross. As we slowly stemmed the current the houses of Nikolaevsk and the shipping in its front, the smoking foundries, and the pine-covered hills, faded from view, and with my face to the westward I was fairly afloat on the Anor. The Ingoda was a plain, and varnished boat, a hundred and ten feet long, and about fifteen feet beam. Her helm was of boiler iron, her bottom flat, and her prow sharp and perpendicular. Her iron, woodwork, and engines were brought in a sailing ship to the Anor and there put together. She had two cabins forward and one aft, all below deck. There was a small hold for storing baggage and freight, but the most of the latter was piled on deck. The pilot house was over the forward cabin, and contained a large wheel, two men, and a chart of the river. The rudder was about the size of a barn door, and required the strength of two men to control it. Had she ever refused to obey her helm she would have shown an example of remarkable obstinacy. Over the after cabin there was a cookhouse, where dwelt a shabby and unwholesome cuisinier. Between the wheels was a bridge, occupied by the captain when starting or stopping the boat, the engines, of 30 horsepower, were below deck, under this bridge, the cabins, without staterooms, occupied the whole width of the boat, wide seats with cushions extended around the cabins, and served as beds at night, each passenger carried his own bedding and was his own chambermaid, the furniture consisted of a fixed table, two feet by ten, a dozen stools, a picture of a saint, 
a mirror, and a boy. The latter article not always at hand. The cabins were unclean, and reminded me of the general condition of transports during our late war. Can any philosopher explain why boats in the service of government are nearly always dirty? The personnel of the boat consisted of a captain, mate, engineer, two pilots, and eight or ten men. The captain and mate were in uniform when we left port, but within two hours they appeared in ordinary suits of grey. The crew were deckhands, roustabouts, or firemen, by turns, and when we took wood most of the male deck passengers were required to assist. On American steamboats the after cabin is the aristocratic one, on the Amor the case is reversed. The steerage passengers lived, moved, and had their being and baggage aft the engine, while their betters were forward. This arrangement gave the steerage the benefit of all cinders and smoke, unless the wine was a beam or a stern. Steam navigation on the Amor dates from 1854. In that year two wooden boats, the Shilka and the Argoon, were constructed on the Shilka River, preparatory to the grand expedition of General Moravif. Their timber was cut in the forests of the Shilka and their engines were constructed at Petrovsky Zavod. The Argoon was the first to descend, leaving Chilikinsk on the 27th of May, 1854, and bringing the Governor-General and his staff. It was accompanied by 50 barges and a great many rafts loaded with military forces to occupy the Anor, and with provisions for the Pacific Fleet. The Shilka descended a few months later. She was running in 1866, but the Argoon, the pioneer, existed less than a decade. In 1866 there were 22 steamers on the Anor, all but four belonging to the government. The government boats are engaged in transporting freight, supplies, soldiers, and military stores generally, and carrying the mail. They carry passengers and private freight at fixed rates, but do not give insurance against fire or accidents of navigation. Passengers contract with the captain or steward for subsistence while on board. Deck passengers generally support themselves, but can buy provisions on the boat if they wish. The steward may keep wines and other beverages for sale by the bottle, but he cannot maintain a bar. He has various little speculations of his own and does not feed his customers liberally. On the ingot of the steward purchased eggs at every village, and expected to sell them at a large profit in Nikolaevsk. When we left him he had at least ten bushels on hand but he never furnished eggs to us unless we paid extra for them. One cabin was assigned to Borstein and myself, save at meal times, when two other passengers were to present. One end of it was filled with the mail, of which there were eight bags, each as large as a Saratoga trunk and as difficult to handle. The Russian government performs an express service and transports freight by mail. It receives parcels in any part of the empire and agrees to deliver them in any other part desired. From Nikolaevsk to St. Petersburg the charges are 25 kopecks cents a pound, the distance being 7,000 miles. It gives receipts for the articles, and will insure them at a charge of 2%. On their value, goods of any kind can be sent by post through Russia just as by express in America. 